ಧ್ಯಾನಮಗ್ನಾರಾಯಣಂ ಸಪ್ತಋಷಿಮಂಡಲಾಗತ ತಪ್ತಜೀವೋದ್ಧಾರಣಾಥ ತಪ್ತಸಮಿಹರ್ಷಕ ವೀರೇಶ್ವರ ಶಿವಾಕಾರ ಪದ್ಮಕ್ಷಗೌರಸುಂದರ ನರೇಂದ್ರಮತಿ ದಯಾಲು ರಾಮಕೃಷ್ಣಸುನಂದನ ಅಭಿನವಶಂಕರ ಚೈತನ್ಯಹೃದ್ಭೂಷಿ ಯತಿರಾಜಂ ಜಗದ್ಗುರು ಸಮನ್ವಯ ಪ್ರದೀಪಕ ನಮಿ ದೀನಾಥಬಂಧು ಕೃಪಾಸಿಂಧು ಮಮಾಶ್ರಯ ಶ್ರೀರಾಮಕೃಷ್ಣ ಪಾರ್ಶದ ವಿವೇಕಾನಂದ the lord narayana himself plunged in the deepest meditation on the supreme one of the circle of seven rishis who gave up the intense bliss of samadhi to save suffering humanity the lord of heroes embodiment of shiva himself of lotus eyes and golden body Narendra full of compassion the blessed son of Ramakrishna who had as it were the keen intellect of Shankara and the devoted heart of Chaitanya the king of renouncers the world teacher lighting the lamp of harmony the friend of suffering humanity a sea of grace my refuge the intimate companion of Sri Ramakrishna Swami Vivekananda do we salute Good morning Good morning indeed a, pl- a great pleasure and privilege to be here with all of you and uh, I'd like to start right in on the talk which is about Swami Vivekananda and this idea of an ocean of love this first line of this verses which I chanted these are uh, verses which we use in Hollywood as meditation on Swami Vivekananda during his worship and this first line refers to a remarkable vision which Sri Ramakrishna had about who Swami Vivekananda is and he saw Swami Vivekananda as a sage one of a group of seven sages seated in intense absorption in samadhi Uh, meditating on the absolute and in this vision sri ramakrishna he found his mind soaring beyond the relative world even beyond the heavens beyond the various deities and crossing over into an area of of non-duality uh, a transcendental realm as he put it where no no corporeal being was visible and where even the gods dared not peep and there he found these seven sages seated in samadhi and he told that it occurred to me that these sages must have surpassed not only men but even the gods in knowledge and holiness in renunciation and love lost in admiration i was reflecting on their greatness when i saw a portion of that undifferentiated luminous region condense into the form of a divine child The child came to one of the sages tenderly clasped his neck with his lovely little arms and addressing him in a sweet voice attempted to drag his mind down from the state of samadhi the magic touch roused the sage from his superconscious state and he fixed his unmoving half open eyes on that wonderful child his beaming countenance showed that the child must have been the treasure of his heart in great joy The strange child said to him, "I am going down. You too must go with me." The sage remained mute, but his tender look expressed his assent. As he kept gazing on the child, he was again immersed in samadhi. I was surprised to find that a fragment of the sage's body and mind was descending on earth in the form of an effulgent light. No sooner had I seen Narendra the future swami vivekananda then i recognized him to be that sage so this is referred to in this opening chant how swami vivekananda 
gave up the bliss of samadhi, of union with the Absolute, to take birth on earth. Why? Out of compassion. Out of compassion to help suffering humanity. It's a remarkable vision. Whether we take it literally or figuratively, it's a remarkable vision which shows that the world teachers, they take their birth voluntarily. Not like us. We come dragged, kicking and screaming by our own karma, by our desires. And uh, they rather come, they assent to taking birth of their own free will in compassion to show us who we really are, which is infinite love, infinite consciousness, infinite bliss. They are established in the ocean of love. They come, as it were, floating on the ocean of love. And they invite us to realize that we are also floating on the ocean of love. In Vedanta, we talk about what is truly real. We ask, what is real? And the Vedantic sages discard everything that changes and finally come down to one infinite reality that they call ultimately real. They call it infinite existence, infinite consciousness, and infinite bliss. Sat Jit Ananda. It's one infinite reality. Or even then they say, if you, they go beyond the idea of one. To say that there is one gives the idea of two. So they say, no, it's non-dual. It's advaita. A non-dual reality where there's no separation whatsoever. And that this one reality is the basis of the universe it is the one behind the apparent multiplicity of all the beings, all the galaxies of, man, of duality. And their conclusion is, Tattvam Asi, thou art that. Our true nature is none other than this infinite ocean of love. Swami Vivekananda has given a number of short Definitions of religion. I'd like to read out one of them, which he sent to his American sister, Mary Hale, in a letter in 1896, I think. He writes, The eternal, the infinite, the omnipresent, the omniscient is a principle, not a person. You, I, and everyone are but embodiments of that principle. And the more of this infinite principle is embodied in a person, the greater is he. And all in the end will be the perfect embodiment of that. And thus, all will be one as they are now, essentially. This is all there is of religion. And the practice is through this feeling of oneness that is love. I love these definitions that Swami Vivekananda gives. He boils religion down to the very the very essence of it. Religion is realization, or each soul is potentially divine, the goal is to manifest this divinity within. These kinds of uh, very clear distillations of the essence of religion, and this is one of my favorites. He starts out by affirming that reality, with a capital R, is a principle, not a person. The principle of Satchit Ananda. And then he says... We are all manifestations of that principle. You, I, and everyone are embodiments of that principle. And there are different degrees of manifestation. The more of this infinite principle is embodied in a person, the greater is he. So when we see differences among people, we understand they are just differences in degrees of manifestation. Then he gives this beautiful guarantee all in the end will be the perfect embodiment of that. This is the guarantee of Vedanta, that we are destined to realize our nature, we are destined to be perfect embodiments of the infinite reality, and thus all will be one. At that point, we will all be one as we are now essentially. Actually, already we are all one, but we don't realize it. There will come a time when we realize it. And this is all there is of religion. 
This is all there is, manifesting more and more of our perfection until we all realize the unity. Then he gives the practice in one short phrase. The practice is through this feeling of oneness that is love. So what is the practice? The practice is love, which is, a, he calls it, a feeling of oneness. That love is a, uh, an expression of oneness. So love is thus the root of all. As oneness, as what we understand as uh, oneness, actually love is the highest expression of that oneness in our relative world. What we usually call love is actually a yearning for oneness. So our love is to be purified and as it becomes more and more an expression of true oneness and brings us closer and closer to our goal. I'd like to read a description of uh, Swami Vivekananda written by his brother, Mahindranath Dutta. Mahindranath was in England in 1896 along with Swami Vivekananda. And he recalls Swamiji telling him as follows. Swamiji said to him, You see, at night I go to my room and lie down. I keep quiet for a while. And then within me so much ananda, so much bliss arises that I cannot stay lying down. I see the blissful mother. Men, animals, the sky and earth, all are saturated with bliss. I cannot lie down any longer, so I get up and dance in the middle of the room. That bliss can no longer be confined within my heart. The whole world becomes filled with it, as it were. Even as he said this, Swamiji began to dance like a child for a little while. Then he said with affection to those who were present, Be happy. Don't be depressed. The mother is everywhere. All will be filled with bliss. So this gives us a glimpse of the state of mind of a knower of truth, like Swami Vivekananda, swimming in an ocean of bliss. We go to bed and close our eyes and we, we can't get to sleep because we're thinking about so many different worries and troubles that we have. Swami Vivekananda lies down and can't get to sleep. Why? In this case, because he's floating in an ocean of bliss. Too much bliss, he can't sleep. <laughs> he was someone utterly unique. Sister Christine describes beautifully uh, in her reminiscences of Swamiji how uh, she looked on this unique quality of Swami Vivekananda. She writes, Now and then, at long intervals of time, a being finds his way to this planet who is unquestionably a wanderer from another sphere, who brings with him to this sorrowful world some of the glory, the power, the radiance of the far distant region from which he came. He walks among men, but he is not at home here. He is a pilgrim, a stranger. He tarries but a night. He shares the life of those about him, enters into their joys and sorrows, rejoices with them, mourns with them. But through it all, he never forgets who he is, whence he came, or what the purpose of his coming. He never forgets his divinity. He remembers that he is the great the glorious, the majestic self. This reminds us of Swami Ramakrishnananda's telling how uh, there's a parable in the Bhagavata of the fish who on the full moon night they found the moon dancing in the waves and they jumped through the waves playing with the moon and feeling that the moon was one of them. And then morning came and the moon set and they realized that no, after all, the moon was not one of them, but was a, a being of an entirely different order. And Swami Ramakrishnananda, one of uh, Swami Vivekananda's brother disciples, said, we felt the same way about Swami Vivekananda. While he was with us, he played with us, and we felt he was one of ours. But once he left us, we realized he was a being of a, of a different order. Arjuna asks a very significant question uh, to his teacher, Sri Krishna, in the Bhagavad Gita, in the second chapter. 
Sri Krishna has been explaining to Arjuna that you are not a body, you are a soul. You cannot be killed, you cannot be cut, you cannot be burned, you cannot be dried, and uh, exhorts him to re- know it, to realize it. And then Arjuna asks, well, uh, you talk about realizing this, uh, this uh, my true nature. What does someone who has realized, what do, what do they look like? How do they act? How do they walk? How do they sit? And Sri Krishna gives the answer in the last portion of chapter 2, called the Sthita Pragna Lakshanam, the qualities of the illumined soul. The, to think of these qualities is, uh, for us, a spiritual practice. It's a great help. A, a soul like Swami Vivekananda, who is uh, an illumined soul, how does he move? How does he sit? How does he act? How does one who is perfectly manifesting the infinite how does he manifest it? We find some characteristics, like he is overflowing with love for the divine manifesting in all beings. He's seeing the divine in all beings, and again he's overcome with compassion for seeing suffering. How does he walk? One devotee remembers the first time he saw Swami Vivekananda enter the classroom in America. I was seated in the classroom, he writes, waiting for the Swami's appearance, when soon a man came in, one whose walk expressed dignity and whose general bearing showed majesty, like one who owns everything and desires nothing. We can imagine Swami Vivekananda walking through the streets of New York, a penniless beggar, looking like a king, like he owned everything, looking like this is his kingdom. The king is out on a walk surveying his own kingdom. King of all he surveys. Because he is established in that oneness, so he doesn't feel a separation from anything. And yet, he doesn't long to own any of it. Being utterly detached from it, paradoxically, he owns everything. Whereas we, we think we own our houses and our cars and our cell phones, and our clothes, and maybe our spouses and our children. We own so many things. We actually are not, we don't own them, we become owned by them. We we become possessed by our possessions, because we are attached to them. So in utter freedom and detachment, owning nothing, Swami Vivekananda could own everything. He established in self-knowledge. He saw from that high vantage point where everything and all things are manifestations or reflections of the one. Ida Ansel remembers Swami Vivekananda in San Francisco. She writes, Swamiji always attracted attention wherever he went. He had a majestic bearing which everybody recognized. As he would walk down Market Street, people would stand aside to let him pass or turn around and ask, Who is the Hindu prince? It was in this way. She tells how Swami Vivekananda wanted to see a ship being launched. And one of the devotees was working in one of the ironworks. And so he arranged to come and uh, see a launching at one of the shipyards. Now, the actual, the, the best view was from the launching platform, which was closed. You had to have a ticket to see that. The rest of the crowd was watching from a distance. But Swami Vivekananda, he wanted to see that he wanted to have the best view, so he simply walked right up onto the launching platform. There were two men there guarding it and checking tickets, but they didn't bat an eye, they didn't ask him for anything, they just he just walked right by them. Why? Because he just his bearing of majesty, who could challenge him? He was clearly the owner of the place. <laughs> Another incident when Swami Vivekananda came to Alameda, California, it's a place in the East Bay, and met Mr. Allen, one of the devotees there, who greeted him jovially with the words, Well, Swami, I see you are in Alameda. But Swamiji replied gravely, No, Mr. Allen, I am not in Alameda. Alameda is in me. So we can meditate on such incidents and characteristics. Shankaracharya explains in his commentary on the Gita that these, the characteristics of the realized soul 
enumerated in the scriptures are the, presented as disciplines for the seeker. So those disciplines will mature into realization. That saying, the siddhi of the siddha is the sadhana of the sadhaka. Those, the siddhi, the perfected quality of the siddha, the perfected soul, is the sadhana, the spiritual discipline of the sadhaka, the seeker. So these, next time we are walking down the street in Washington, D.C., downtown Washington, D.C., can we feel that we, I own all of this. This is all mine, and yet be utterly detached from it. Can we do that? Can we love all the men and women and children that we see while we're walking down the street? All the uh, big and tall and short and small and fat and thin and... Americans and Asians and Africans and all those, can we love them all, seeing them all as manifestations of the one? So this is why we study the great souls. One reason why we study the great souls, to get to, to they show us an ideal. How are we, how should we strive to be? And again, we get uh, some inspiration. If he could do it, so can I. If he can do it, so can I. Vedanta is never a religion that says, the book, uh, I have seen, but you have not seen. Swami Vivekananda says, if someone tells you, I have seen, but you cannot see, run from that man, <laughs> run from him. Vedanta says, thou art that, realize it. You know it yourself, know who you are. In Swami Vivekananda's childhood even, we see uh, this, on the one hand, his contemplative nature and also his very loving nature begin to manifest. He used to love to give things to wandering monks and beggars. He had been just given a new cloth and a wandering monk came to the door and he gave it away. Now, his parents were not so pleased about that, so they'd be, when they'd hear a monk or a beggar come walking through the street, they'd lock him in his room <laughs> so he wouldn't give things away. But uh, then, apparently, he would throw things through the window. <laughs> There was no stopping him. But we know that as he grew older, he had to pass through a period of great suffering and doubt, a real trial, trial by fire. His father suddenly died, throwing the family into poverty. And rather than saving up for the family, he had actually left the family in debt. Then, to make matters worse, some of the other family members usurped the property. They stole away what was rightfully the his portion of the family's property, and he had to go uh, to uh, court even to fight them and regain the property. So it seemed like everybody turned against them. Uh, he, they had had so many friends. It turns out that they were all fair weather friends. When the when their condition became bad, their friends, all doors were shutting in their face. So he went through a period of, of real, almost a, a loss of faith, a pessimism, a struggle to reconcile, how to reconcile on the one hand the idea of an all-good, all-merciful, all-beneficent divine, and on the other hand, suffering, the terrible suffering in, and evil. He often wouldn't have enough to eat he would come home and the family hadn't eaten yet and he would say, I've already eaten so that there would be enough more for others. So it seems when such souls come, they have to struggle also. They do forget for a time, at least partially, their true identity and their mission. And Swami Vivekananda was like that. However, there came a turning point when uh, after a whole day's fruitless search for a job, walking barefoot through the heat of Calcutta, no shoes, no money for shoes. Uh, he collapsed, exhausted, on the outer plinth of a house. And the light rain began to fall. And he says that, Suddenly I felt as if by some divine power, coverings of my soul were being removed one after another. All my former doubts regarding the coexistence of divine justice and mercy and the presence of misery in the creation of a blissful providence were automatically solved. By a deep introspection, I found the meaning of it all and was satisfied. 
So this is a great challenge for all of us. Swamiji seems to have been able to go beyond the pairs of opposites at this point, go beyond the pairs of opposites of good and evil, of wealth and poverty, all the pairs of opposites we see in this world of duality. He touched the unity which lies beyond. So we see uh, later how Swami Vivekananda developed this intense feeling for others, this intense feeling for the misery of others. We see then in him uh, a joining of, on the one hand, this bliss which we heard about from his brother Mahindranath, this intense bliss, and on the other hand, this intense feeling for others, for the misery of others. This, intent, this great compassion. Compassion, actually, the meaning of compassion is suffering with. Com is in Latin. It means with, passion, to suffer with. In his wanderings throughout India after Sri Ramakrishna passed away, he saw the terrible condition of the majority of Indians, the masses, as they were called. And he felt so strongly for them, what could be done? What could be done for them? How could, what could be done to lift the masses, to raise India? It sometimes strikes me how odd it is, how terrible, really, that we are able to live and go about our day and knowing that people, our own brothers and sisters, are starving to death in Sudan or are killing each other in Syria or Ukraine or starving in downtown Washington, D.C. How can I go on with my day and not try my very best, my very hardest to stop it? How can I know that, go, go on with my day knowing that there are people sleeping in the gutters in Washington, D.C.? I don't feel that oneness. They are still them. The people sleeping in the gutter are them. They're not one of us. I'm not yet manifesting that ocean of love. If my actual brother, my birth brother, or my, my best friend, or my father, or my cousin, say I was walking down the street in Washington, D.C., and I find my own cousin lying on the sidewalk uh, with a sign, hungry, please give money, what, what if I would see him? Immediate, I would be shocked. Brother, what's the matter? I'd lift him up, immediately take him home, give him a bath, clothe him, feed him, see what's the matter, find out how he got into that terrible state. But we don't do that. We forget that in actuality, the man or the woman lying in the gutter is also my brother, is also my sister. We forget that in actuality there is no real separation between that which we call I and that which we call you. These are, this is actually a, an insubstantial division. The real I and the real you are one. One infinite I. So from that standpoint, it is from that standpoint that Holy Mother, Sri Sarada Devi, she could say, no one is a stranger, the whole world is your own. It's an utterly Vedantic statement. Utterly Vedantic statement. The whole world is your own. Seen from that non-dual consciousness, the whole world is our own. And Holy Mother goes on to say, strive to make the whole world your own. This is uh, equivalent to Swami Vivekananda's statement, the practice is through this feeling of oneness that is love. See, it's actually the same idea being expressed here. Holy Mother says, strive to make the whole world your own. The practice is through this feeling of oneness that is love. During Swami Vivekananda's wanderings through India, his heart expanded very much. There's a very touching reminiscence by Swami Turiyananda. They used to wander alone. Swami Vivekananda wanted to wander all by himself, but now and then they would meet up in different places and in great joy uh, share some time together before going off again. And during one of these meetings, Swami Turiyananda recalled, I vividly remember some remarks made by Swamiji at that time. The exact words and accents and the deep pathos with which they were uttered still ring in my ears. He said, Hari Bhai, Brother Hari, 
I am still unable to understand anything of your so-called religion. Then, with an expression of deep sorrow on his countenance and intense emotion shaking his body, he placed his hand on his heart and added, But my heart has expanded very much, and I have learnt to feel. Believe me, I feel intensely indeed. His voice was choked with feeling. He could say no more. For a time, profound silence reigned, and tears rolled down his cheeks. So we see that his, the gates of his heart opened, and he began to manifest that compassion for which he came. So later, he would ask his countrymen, after his, his return to India, after his stay in the West, he could say, Do you feel... Do you feel that millions and millions of the descendants of gods and of sages have become next-door neighbors to brutes? Do you feel that millions are starving today and millions have been starving for ages? Do you feel that ignorance has come over the land as a dark cloud? Does it make you restless? Does it make you sleepless? Has it gone into your blood, coursing through your veins, becoming consonant with your heartbeats? Has it made you almost mad? Are you seized with that one idea of the misery of ruin? And have you forgotten all about your name, your fame, your wives, your children, your property, even your own bodies? Have you done that? This is the great heart of Swami Vivekananda. Even when he was in America, after his resounding success at the Parliament of Religions, he found himself in a very fine room with a very fine bed, he couldn't sleep on the bed. He slept on the floor, weeping, thinking of the misery of his countrymen and countrywomen. How this burning feeling was expressed in uh, a letter to Sister Niverita. He writes, Awake, awake, great ones. The world is burning with misery. Can you sleep? Let us call and call till the sleeping gods awake, till the God within answers to the call. This is his call to us, to awake. He understands that the ultimate cause of misery, the real cause of misery, is ignorance of our true nature. And he calls on all of us to awaken. Awaken. The world is burning with misery. Can you sleep? Yes, we, he is awake, but we sleep. The, the, the alarm is going off. The whole, misery is, the whole world is in misery. And we say, no, we pull the covers back over our heads. Let us sleep some more. He cautions us also that it is, intellect is not enough. It is feeling that is wanted. He writes, It is feeling that works, that moves with speed infinitely superior to that of electricity or anything else. Do you feel? That is the question. If you do, you will see the Lord. Here's his beautiful guarantee. If you feel, you will see the Lord. It is the feeling that you have today that will be intensified, deified, raised to the highest platform until it feels everything, the oneness in everything, till it feels God in itself and in others. The real help is feeling, love. Do you feel for others? If you do, you are growing in oneness. If you do not feel for others, you may be the most intellectual giant ever born, but you will be nothing. You are but dry intellect, and you will remain so. So here he is expanding his instructions to us. The practice is through this feeling of oneness that is love. And when feeling awakens in the heart, naturally also action follows from that. Jesus says, Swami Vivekananda quoting, Out of the fullness of the heart the mouth speaketh. And Swamiji adds, out of the fullness of the heart, the hand worketh also. Out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks, and also the hand works. Out of the fullness of the heart. When the heart is full, the hands automatically know what to do. When Swami Vivekananda would talk of his master, Sri Ramakrishna, actually he would very seldom talk of his master, Sri Ramakrishna, and in public he only did so twice. But we find in his hymns to Sri Ramakrishna 
glimpse into his understanding of who is Sri Ramakrishna, who is his master. We sing these hymns, two of them we sing every night here and at most of our centers. And uh, there's one line which uh, I, I wanted to mention just now, Bhaswara Bhavasagara, Chira Unmara Prema Patar. Prema Patar is ocean of love. Ocean of love. A sea of, uh, shining sea of uh, divine moods, ever intoxicated with uh, divine love. A very o- veritable ocean of love. Through these hymns we understand that, uh, that Swami Vivekananda looked on Sri Ramakrishna as a, an embodiment of divinity. As a, sometimes he would use the term avatara. Avatara often translated as incarnation of God. The term incarnation I personally don't feel is so helpful. We say incarnation of God. What is God? I, I don't know what God is. I'm striving to know God. So what does it mean to be incarnation of God? I'm not sure. But uh, when we see these words, prema patar, then we get an understanding maybe what is avatara, is an ocean of love, is kandana bhava bandhana, is the breaker of the bonds of this world, bringing us to freedom. The great world teachers come for that purpose, to lead us to freedom, to show us the ocean of love, to manifest the ocean of love, to say, love me, if we can give a drop of love to the ocean of love, the drop merges in the ocean, and we easily reach the infinite. So the great world teachers, they come for that purpose, to present themselves as a channel of love, of divine love, infinite love, to provide a form, to make the ocean of love tangible to us, to draw us into it. Come, here's the ocean of love, jump in. About Sri Ramakrishna's love, Swami Vivekananda taught, the other idea of his life was intense love for others. Men came in crowds to hear him, and he would talk twenty hours in the twenty-four, and that not for one day, but for months and months, until at last the body broke down under the pressure of this tremendous strain. His intense love for humankind would not let him refuse to help even the humblest of the thousands who sought his aid. And he describes how Sri Ramakrishna had attained that, that same sightedness. He would see the divine in all, from the, from the lowest to the highest. I myself, he says, have seen this man standing before those women whom society would not touch, and falling at their feet bathed in tears, saying, Mother, in one form thou art in the street, and in another form thou art the universe. I salute thee, mother, I salute thee. The similar incident actually is recorded in the life of Swami Vivekananda. It was his last travels in the West before returning to India, and he and his party had gone to Egypt, and one in the party, Madame Calvé, the famous French opera singer, famous in her time, she records the following incident. She writes, One day we lost our way in Cairo. I suppose we had been talking too intently. At any rate, we found ourselves in a squalid, ill-smelling street where half-clad women lolled from windows and sprawled on doorsteps. The Swami noticed nothing, until a particularly noisy group of women on a bench in the shadow of a dilapidated building began laughing and calling to him. One of the ladies of our party tried to hurry us along, but the Swami detached himself gently from our group and approached the women on the bench. Poor child, he said, she has forgotten who she is and has put her divinity into her body. He began to weep, as Jesus might have done before the woman taken in adultery. The women were silenced and abashed. One of them leaned forward and kissed the hem of his robe, murmuring brokenly in Spanish, Hombre de Dios, Hombre de Dios, man of God. Another, with a sudden gesture of modesty and fear, threw her arm in front of her face 
as though she would screen her shrinking soul from those pure eyes. This is the wide-open heart of Swami Vivekananda. Seeing the fallen, he weeps. She has forgotten who she is and has put her divinity into her body. This intense love didn't allow him to turn away, to reject, but rather to weep. And they recognized it. They recognized it. So how we, we, we ought to ask, we might ask, how can we approach to this level of heart expansion? The heart, of course, the physical heart is a, a muscle. Uh, we're not talking about the physical heart here. We're talking about the, the emotional or the spiritual heart. But in a way, it's also like a muscle. We strengthen it by using it. We have to use it. The, the more we use it, the stronger it gets. The more we can love, the more love we have to give. Paradox, love is not like money, that the more we give it away, the less we have. If we have a lot of money and we, we give it away to a lot of people, and then gradually our stock dwindles until we have nothing left. Love is the opposite. The more we give love away, the more our power to love increases, and the more we are able to love. Swami Vivekananda gives three inseparable characteristics of true love. It may be useful to look briefly into that. He says he likens love to a triangle with three sides. Each side is equally important. And what are these three characteristics? Love knows no bargaining. Love knows no fear. And love knows no rival. He says, wherever there is any seeking for something in return... There can be no real love. It becomes a mere matter of shopkeeping. So love knows no bargaining, no seeking something in return. Most of us have, uh, we love, no doubt, but we have some expectations attached to that love. We love our family and our friends and our children and all that. But at the very least, they ought to love us back, right? At the very least, may, it may not be a, an expectation we may not express that expectation, but oftentimes behind it, that expectation will be there. The second angle of the triangle of love is that love knows no fear. So long as there is any fear in the heart, how can there be love also? Love conquers naturally all fear. These expectations we have also lead to fears. What if she doesn't love me? What if he doesn't love me? What if my beloved should die? What if my beloved should betray me? And the third angle of the love triangle is that love knows no rival, for in it is always embodied the lover's highest ideal. To every human being, the highest ideal is God. So no rival. Love knows no bargaining. Love knows no fear. Love knows no rival. The perfect love is love for the divine. Is the perfect love, we can say, is a manifestation of that ocean of love falling equally upon all beings and all things. When Swami Vivekananda is loving all, he's not loving all as people, as individual persons. He's loving all as manifestations of the divine, as manifestations of the one infinite love. And nothing else competes with that love. All love, in that sense, all love is actually for God. All love is flowing to the divine. All are manifestations of the divine. So love flowing to all is, is actually love for the divine. Swami Vivekananda describes Sri Ramakrishna as prema arpana, samadarshana. Prema, our offering of love. Sri Ramakrishna in the, our evening Vesper hymn, <coughs> as uh, an offering of love and seeing, all, seeing in all that sh d divinity shining within. So we have to practice it, that's all. When we direct our love to the divine, there is enough left for everyone else, enough to give it to all without binding, without giving pain. Our hearts overflow with love for our own children and our hearts overflow 
with love for our neighbors' children, and our hearts also overflow with love for the children in Sudan and everywhere else in the world. That love, it sees no distinctions. It sees no distinctions. Why? Because, as Swami Vivekananda puts it, the mighty ocean of love has entered into him, and he sees not man in man, but beholds his beloved everywhere. Through every face shines to him his beloved. So this is the secret of unconditional love for all beings. It comes through seeing the divine within ourselves and within others, within all beings. And this universal love will be impersonal. It goes beyond personality. It is not based on the specific qualities of any person, any specific personal qualities of individuals, but on that which transcends the personal, the divine within. It's, let's not think that impersonal love, it sounds kind of cool and distant. That's not what I mean at all. It's, it can have that meaning, but that's not what we're talking about here. What we mean is that it's not tied to personality. It's not limited. It's unlimited. It's infinite. Divine love is impersonal because it transcends personalities, the personalities to which we give so much importance, our likes and our dislikes, our habits, our thoughts, our feelings. They all melt away in the ocean of love, like the salt doll of Sri Ramakrishna's story and of our song this morning. Then we gain our true individuality, as Swamiji would say. We gain our true personality when we are identified with our true self, the infinite love. So I think we can close here. And I'd like to close with a letter. I'm sure I've read it out before. Swamiji wrote to his friend Francis Leggett. Swamiji was in London in, on 6th July 1896, and Mr. Leggett would have been in New York. And here he expresses something of that universal love which flowed in his heart, that love which flowed to God and overflowed to all beings, a love which makes the lover mad for God. So he starts out his letter, Dear Frankincense. He used to address Francis sometimes as Frankincense. Dear Frankincense, you will be pleased to know that I am also learning my lessons every day in patience and above all in sympathy. I think I am beginning to see the divine, even inside the high and mighty Anglo-Indians. I think I am slowly approaching to that state when I should be able to love the very devil himself, if there were any. At twenty years of age, I was the most unsympathetic, uncompromising fanatic. I would not walk on the footpath on the theater side of the streets in Calcutta. At 33, I can live in the same house with prostitutes and never would think of saying a word of reproach to them. Is it degenerate? Or is it that I am broadening out into the universal love which is the Lord himself? Again, I have heard that if one does not see the evil around him, he cannot do good work. He lapses into a sort of fatalism. I do not see that. On the other hand, my power of work is immensely increasing and becoming immensely effective. Some days I get into a sort of ecstasy. I feel that I must bless everyone, everything, love and embrace everything, and I do see that evil is a delusion. I am in one of these moods now, dear Francis, and I am actually shedding tears of joy at the thought of you and Mrs. Leggett's love and kindness to me. I bless the day I was born. I have had so much of kindness and love here, and that love infinite that brought me into being has guarded every one of my actions, good or bad. Don't be frightened. For what am I, what was I ever, but a tool in his hands, for whose service I have given up everything, my beloved ones, my joys, my life. He is my playful darling. I am his playfellow. There is neither rhyme nor reason in the universe. What reason binds him? He, the playful one, is playing these tears and laughters over all parts of the play. Great fun, great fun, as Joe says. It is a funny world, 
and the funniest chap you ever saw is he, the beloved infinite. Fun, is it not? Brotherhood or playmatehood, a school of romping children let out to play in this playground of the world, isn't it? Whom to praise, whom to blame, it is all his play. They want explanations, but how can you explain him? He is brainless, nor has he any reason. He is fooling us with little brains and reason, but this time he won't find me napping. I have learned a thing or two. Beyond, beyond reason and learning and talking is the feeling, the love, the beloved. I, sake, fill up the cup, and we will be mad. Yours ever in madness, Vivekananda. Tam deshi kendram paramam pavitram Vishwasya palam adhuranyatindram Hitayandrenam naramurti mantam Viveka ananda maham namami Durjana sajjano bhuyat sajjana shanti mapnuyat Shanto mucheta bandhe bhyo muktaschandyan vimochayet Sarvastaratu durgani sarvo bhadrani pashyatu Sarvastat buddhimapnotu sarvastarvatranandatu Om shanti 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 To that teacher of teachers, supremely pure, guardian of the world, the sweet one, the prince of yogins, who took up the human form for the good of humankind, to that Vivekananda we bow down. May the wicked become virtuous, may the virtuous attain tranquility, may the tranquil be free from bonds, may the freed make others free. May all be freed from dangers, May all realize what is good. May all be actuated by noble thoughts. May all rejoice everywhere. Om peace, peace, peace.